Welcome to the Whiskey Stories podcast. I had to recalibrate my taste buds because obviously having radical radiotherapy and aggressive chemotherapy, mm. um, not everybody comes out of that with being able to taste. But it did take me probably six to nine months to be able to recalibrate right. my taste buds. About two months, three months after I finished treatment. And we were in Ardenhoe doing a tasting with Paul, the distillery manager at Ardenhoe. And I couldn't even taste the whiskey. It was burning my mouth. Right, welcome to the Whiskey Stories podcast with myself, Graham Coger. We are back in Diggers. I've got Angus, a whiskey fan. We've got Ross, Whiskey Ross, Ross Barr, and we are joined by the first ever whiskey guru that we've ever had on the show. It's Colin Hines. Guys, how are we doing? I'm really good. How are you doing? I'm not too bad, Colin. Happy to be here once again. Some nice drams in front of us. We certainly do. Angus, yeah. you're driving. Happy chappy. I'm excellent. You've got an orange juice in front of me. I've got an orange juice in front of me. But, it's like vodka uh, orange to me, but there you go. I'm, I'm remaining sober until my birthday. It is actually the there first time ever on the podcast that we've had somebody not drinking. Uh, but we could commend that. Well, it's all, it's is, all a bit balanced, isn't it? The thing is, Angus, as we're recording it, it's the, uh, it's the 28th of November and your birthday is, what, the 30th? However, when this right. goes out, it's the 28th of December. <laughs> yeah. which, which means that you have to wait another uh, 11 months until you have a drink again if you're going to take that. We'll, all, yes. be, we'll all be nursing our hangovers by the time this comes out. Technically speaking, yeah, this is the post-Christmas sort of... That we're in the we're in that shitty stage between Christmas and New Year when nobody knows what to do except for carry on drinking and eat mm. some turkey sandwiches, Colin. Eh? Well, maybe, maybe. <laughs> but you're maybe, a, maybe. But obviously, with my chefing background, we can do a wee bit more than just make sandwiches. Well, that's it. We're going to talk a little bit about your your sort of career and things like that. So, the Tipsy Midgey, you are the man who is behind the Tipsy Midgey Pub, which has won Whiskey Bar of the Year 2023 and. As well as that, you picked up an award as Whiskey Guru as well in that in that award ceremony in August. So it must be a hugely immensely, a huge, immensely proud moment for you. It was a nice surprise, um, given the fact that we've only been open probably, what, 14 months. Um, and obviously the selection for Whiskey Guru was, was pretty intense. We had to spend a full day at Deanston because um, they were the, obviously the sponsors. Put us through our paces. It was during the fringe as well. I didn't yeah. finish work till about half three in the morning. Picked us up at half eight, so only got about four hours, maybe five hours sleep. Went over and then we had a, we had a fully booked bar for the evening because we did a, we were doing specials every day during the French. Yeah. So it was a pretty intense period. So um, hopefully next year, maybe they won't do it during the French. And <laughs> I take it when you're, what is the selection process to put yourself a in the hat or B selected as a whiskey guru. So, in, from my understanding, is you have to be put forward initially by your peers and obviously the public. Mm-hmm. They then send through a mystery shopper, uh, and in some cases they send through two lots of mystery shoppers. Then they, they get it down to kind of the final four. Then the final four of us went over, um, went had a kind of prolonged interview, did a kind of impromptu knowledge session about right. what we know about whiskey, um, kind of our heritage, our history. Am I right saying you've done a kind of blind tasting and nosing as well on the day? We did a tasting, but it wasn't really blind no. because we knew it was Deanston. Well, I suppose <laughs> I, I suppose. <laughs> so, so from that point of view, we, we, we kind of had a bit of a... Because you know the whole, you've got the whole range of Deanston and such on the bar. I've got, I've got a fair amount of Deanston, to be fair. I've got probably... A ton of Boone having as well. Uh, so, just, so on just, brand, like, yeah. Just in case they sneak that in. <clears throat> I mean, we do plenty of research at the bar anyway, but let's say that the Deanston range was very well sampled that week. 
So I mean, it's a it's a it's a bit of a secret on this podcast that. Ross likes to call himself the whiskey guru of the podcast. I'm not surprised. <laughs> <laughs> Ross, Ross does definitely have a phenomenal knowledge. This is news to Ross. <laughs> so he, he tries to act all modest on the mic, but actually he says, listen, lads, if you're going to do this, you better do it right. I need to be on the show. But I do tell Graham and Angus how to drink a glass properly before we kick off, Mama. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think what Colin just, just said, very, very, uh, snuck it in there. It's all about research. Uh, and I just think that Colin and I are probably good examples examples of people who have enjoyed research over the last couple of years to its fullest ability. I think my tum tum would be a testament to that. This isn't chocolate donuts. <laughs> what, do you, what do you think your uh, blood alcohol level is consistently staying at as people who work in the whiskey industry? 110% Scottish is what it stays at. Maybe 0.01% Japanese. Uh, <laughs> oh, good go. point, good point actually. Well, like, even today what we're drinking... Um, oh, it's good to talk about what we've got in front of us. Colin's come in, and Colin have both been stuck in traffic into Edinburgh. And so the first thing I've seen is somebody's got on the back bar sitting out um, another old Pontley hand fill in yeah. here. And so, again, I'm not, I'm, old Pontley, I'm, I'm not massively drawn to a lot of what they do. I think the 12's the best standard expression yeah. for my flavour profile. But I'm not going to come into Diggers and see it a newly opened handful and not order it. Yeah. I feel like it's my responsibility at that point, you know? Well, of course, well, you've, you've taken a couple of photos of it because photos will end up going aye, up on aye, our Instagram. Aye, so you, when you're listening well. to this, you can check our Instagram and That's see it. what we've been drinking. And so like. I kind of surprised Colin with one of them and then you've got another distillery exclusive, an Aberlour um, American Oak, which I've spoken about before on the podcast because I drank so much of it. This, like, super fruity Aberlour. Um, you've got a good lineup today, Graham, as well. Do you know? I am. Uh, since since our episode with uh, Cody Reynolds, who's Glen Cadom and yeah. uh, Tom and Tool as well, but I've gone for is it the Glen Cadom PX Reserver? Yeah. Yep. And I've also got the Glen Cadom Fifteen White. Port. Yeah, White Port. Uh, White Port. Good that I know these things, and it's the edge of our ten <laughs> standard to finish it off there. And then I'm getting a left home with Angus who's sitting there with a nice smell <laughs> <laughs> orange juice. <laughs> no, not a still orange juice, an orange juice and lemonade. So yeah, orange juice and lemonade. Got a real acidy hit that ah, you get there. Glad you said still. <laughs> right, so Colin, I mean, you've you've had quite a career, um, ranging from being a being a a, a, you know, a successful chef working around the world, uh, working in some of the great countries around the world that you've worked in, to then coming in and having your own restaurants in Edinburgh, really successful restaurants. And then, of course, you've had your ups and downs with your own health and then moving into opening up uh, an award-winning whiskey bar that in, in in the space of just over a year. You're bringing a tear to my grim. Quite. <laughs> you still got that tenor you're doing. <laughs> but, I mean, tell us, I mean, th- th- how did it start? You're a chef to begin with. Well, right? chef to begin with, um, kind of... Uh, working in Glasgow, kind of 13, 14 years old, just looking for part-time work. Found that I happened to have a bit of a talent for working in kitchens. Luckily, I went to Glasgow College of Food Technology, got my apprenticeship, did a proper four-year apprenticeship. Did really well, won quite a few awards as a, as a sort of young chef, then as an older chef. That enabled me to do a bit of travelling. Um, I then luckily went to Australia, worked through Australia. In Indonesia, um, I was in Jakarta, Bali, living over there. That then allowed me to then travel through to Thailand, Vietnam. You must we, have stuck out a wee bit, Colin. 
Well, believe it or not, there's quite a lot of uh, big, big, scary Glaswegians over there. About, <laughs> so I don't mean to interrupt you, but see, it must be when you travel the world, and see me as soon as you tell people you're from Scotland, people just are drawn towards that as well, aren't well, they? Well, I mean, that was the thing. Like, even from an early age, because you're Scottish, people were always asking, what's the whiskey like? Where are you right. from? Mm. And then my heritage, so my granny's granny is a Cummings family. So right. they started the Cardo Car- distillery. Right, Granny's Granny. Aye, well, right. I don't want to say great, 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 great. great, great. <laughs> because Granny's Granny sounds like the beginning of a song. Right, right, Granny's Granny, right. So there was always this kind of whiskey narrative mm. going through the family and yeah. obviously my, my uncles and my cousins and stuff. So we're always like, you know, my, my uncle Robert, for example, before he passed away, he had easily five, 600 bottles of whiskey and really? his kind of whiskey snug. And that was when I was five, six, seven, eight. And we'd go up and just look at the bottles and right. we'd never allowed to touch them. So there was always this kind of whiskey yeah. background, this right. back, you know, this backstory of, you know, if only Diageo hadn't stolen it and taken it. <laughs> 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 we are looking for sponsorship for the podcast. That would have been quite unusual at the time as well, with that size of collection, I imagine. Yeah, I mean... I think I think a lot of people had got given gifts, and I mean, I grew up in the west of Scotland, so you had loads of whiskey bonds. You had oh, the J and B bond, and you know, in Dumbarton, you obviously had Alkintoshin, and so or Claybank. But there was always like three or four whiskey bonds, especially. Unfortunately, one of the bonds, which was closer to um, where my mum grew up, obviously that's where they film River City now. All right. So that used to be a massive whiskey bond. So really? the whole so the whole area was always about kind of the whiskey, yeah. and, and they all got bottles of whiskey per month to try and stop them or dissuade them from just taking the whiskey. Aye. So everybody in that area would have had tons and tons of whiskey. Um, so from that point of view, so obviously going into chefing, did really well as a chef, um, travelled the world and then I was in London, worked in London, then France, went down the Michelin route for a while. I managed to do quite a few sort of nice stages in some of the sort of best restaurants in the world. Um, then I managed to get a job working with Disney, so I went and worked in the Caribbean. Then what I came back it? to Scotland. I was on um, a Disney Fantasy, which was a cruise ship. Really? So I was, um, yeah, running a couple of restaurants on that. It was a billion dollar cruise ship. A cruise ship? Yes, uh, right. So there's four, four thousand passengers, two thousand staff, which was mental. Really? Yeah, That's... unbelievable. Had a pass that was probably about. If you know what a pass is in a kitchen, it's like where you serve the food oh, from. Of course, yeah. So that that must have been easily a hundred yards long. Um, right. Had hundreds of chefs preparing food for with nine hundred and fifty-two guests. Give so, or take. what was your role on the ship? You CDC. Were, so is that like executive? Uh, not executive. Executive looks after. So there's like nine restaurants. So I looked after oh, two was restaurants. Right. Yeah. So, so how many eggs do you go through in a day? <laughs> <laughs> We asked more, more, than, more than I can count. Yeah. We asked some the, the more challenging questions <laughs> here on the whiskey stories. Well, no, it's just, uh, Thankfully, it wasn't in my job to count the eggs. Count the eggs, but I mean, I mean, when you when you look at when you're travelling around the world, Aye. and I can remember we were we were actually uh, talking about this in one of the other episodes was uh, when I was in Australia, and I remember getting to Australia again, similar to yourself a little bit in the sense that when you're a travelling Scotsman, you always feel a little bit proud about the. The, the, the product that we have produced in this country that seems to hit we every invented single. everything well we did I and, and whiskey again with a with a, a family connection to whiskey and stuff I've always been it's always been something I, I really enjoy and I, and I remember being in Sydney before I travelled all the way up the, the the sort of Gold Coast bought myself and all I could afford I think it was a Johnny Walker Red Label or something like that I could afford just to have in my bag this is a whiskey I'm going to 
I'm going to make sure over the next three or four months this is a whiskey that I'm sort of just every now and then tipping into and stuff like that. So I mean, but then when you go away and you meet somebody and you're abroad and you're and you meet somebody abroad and they're talking about Scotsman whiskey and stuff like that, that must have been something that you are basically almost acting in an ambassadorial role. For. Always been an ambassador for Scotland, even unintentionally. Mm-hmm. You know, whenever people were talking about Scotland, they, they always asked about various things. You always got the Iron Brew. You always yeah. got the deep fried Mars bar, <laughs> and, and then you got and then you got the whiskey. Although we did, I remember doing a a tasting menu for some expats. Instead of it calling it deep fried Mars bar, we called it chocolate beignet, um, <laughs> and we did a, a methadone sorbet, which didn't have any methadone in it, but it was just green food coloring. Really? Yeah. Uh, so we did a methadone sorbet with breakfast syrup and a. A chocolat beignet. So you played around with the flavour. Oh. <laughs> I mean, when you were when you were sorry, Ross, when you were abroad, did you ever come across Haddington House whiskey, which is what Angus once famous from Haddington, born and raised, and then he walks into a pub in Japan, was in it? Japan, yeah. Oh, superb. And there was a Had- bottle of Haddington, Haddington House. House, and it was about they only had about three bottles of scotch. So a bottle of Haddington House, uh, you know, to see that where you know. The, where you're from that was uh, an incredible moment right, so you must have yeah. some bars and seen a bottle of whiskey and been like what's that doing here well, I, remem- I remember being in so I was in St Martin in the Caribbean and I was with a friend from from the ship and he was from St Lucia and he tasted Lafroy for the first time <laughs> <laughs> and his, his eyes crossed and then he started to water <laughs> and he gave it to me he's like surely this is not the way this, this has gone one, off or sure, something. Yeah, this whiskey yeah. must be broken. And I went, <laughs> no, my friend, that's what Iowa medicinal yeah. phenol wed whiskey tastes like. Um, so, yeah, it's quite fun to see yeah. how people react to different whiskeys. Yeah. Coming from being a chef and obviously you're tasting food all the time, Yeah. obviously you must develop your palate and, you know, considering you've been travelling over the world to, an ex- to a very high level, it was that easier to get into whiskey coming from a, a, that kind of background of trying loads of different cuisines and loads of different styles of food and all the rest of it and, or did you always have a thing with whiskey? Well, I think the palate definitely is a chef because your palate is very I suppose defined by what you eat and if you're exposed to different flavours different contrasts whether it's harmonious or whether it's something that's you can probably have a, a, a stronger association with foods that other people don't so for example I remember doing tasting notes with a couple of guys and somebody was saying that one of the one of the, the whiskies had a bit of a roast lobster mm-hmm. element to it. Now I've cooked maybe 10, 20, 30,000 lobsters in my career <laughs> and I wasn't getting any lobster at all. But then we broke it down and what he actually meant was when he was a kid, he remembered being by the beach and, you know, the, the sun Aye. hitting off the, you know, the, the salty seaweed, the hot stones, and that's what he imagined lobster actually yeah. tastes like. So sometimes it's about, as you say, Ross, like, you know, your palate might be one thing, but someone else's memory, and then they associate that with a palate. So when I do tasting notes and when I do things, I try and keep it relatively simple because not everybody's had foie gras and brioche for breakfast like I have. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's it's one of those things that that I commented on, I think, in an earlier episode, and it's the reason why I generally will never go home and drink a, a dram by myself. I want to drink whiskey with other whiskey drinkers, with other whiskey enthusiasts. The best tastings you've ever been at is either walking around a warehouse and the guy that's in charge of the warehouse. Yes. Because you know, you've had it before where the door's locked behind you and you're supposed to <laughs> your phone away. 
Um, I can, I can or, tell you some stories. Or some good brand reps and, and they're representing their product and they've tried it so many times that once you're listening to them, it is, it's psychological. Yeah. So it's his thing, he was totally right in his note and you were able to guide him to probably why he thought that and all the rest of it and that's so collaborative. And, well, I have to disagree with you, Ross. Some, oh, of the, yeah. some, some of the best drums I've had are when the, the missus has just gone to bed and you can open up a, <laughs> can open up a wee whiskey oh, and have a quiet... <laughs> okay, I'll say Angus... Yeah, like, yeah. open the 1944 towels. Yeah. I will say that my, yeah, my, uh, my fiancé doesn't like a whiskey. I'm not yet at the stage of sending her to bed to have a dram. <laughs> Ten years, my friend. Well, that's it. I mean, Angus, you, you, you fancy yourself as uh, Angus fancy himself in the kitchen a little bit as a, as a bit of a master nice. chef. Right, so. uh, yeah, but not on any <laughs> near close as what he, he was he was but. fried an egg on a boat. <laughs> so he's worked on cruise liners too. But must have been a small boat. <laughs> but, but I mean Angus what you cooking mm. this what what did you cook? At Christmas, or I know this this is being recorded before Christmas, but I what's always, on the menu? I will always have duck for Christmas. Uh, yeah, yeah, always, always, traditionally in the house, we've always had duck for some reason. I, I think we decided that. we didn't like turkey, and my mum tried to cook a goose and <laughs> ne- ne- nearly burnt the house down. So <laughs> the duck, duck, duck was finally settled upon as a happy medium, yeah, I think. So, so I mean, um, if, you're, if you're enjoying a dram, Angus, um, Christmas drams, what are you looking for? Christmas drums. I'm I'm immediately going for sherry. I'm going for something something sherry, like maybe like a Ben Rennes. I've got a Ben Rennes open in the house just now, just the regular four and four release, and and that for me is a really nice Christmassy dram. Yeah. Right, there we go. Ross, what about yourself? What's well, my there? my dad? Well, I'll drink any kind of dram, really. I mean, mm. it's, it, it's it's my dad. My dad's a cook. Yeah, but he's he's a good cook. Um, but my mother's can be a touch fussy occasionally with what we're having. So he'd done a goose a few years ago that I thought was brilliant. And I quite fancied duck this year, but my mum's kind of gone off the idea of duck a wee bit. So I think we're actually doing a turkey for turkey. the first time in years. Uh-huh. And now, in my opinion, and the chef might correct me here, but I think a turkey's just a worse version of chicken. <laughs> <laughs> sort of those things. If you, if you get a, one of these artisanal farm hand fed, you know, oh, my chicken, surely it's good, as good as a turkey. Uh-huh. But I get it's, you know, again, my message just said Thanksgiving. You know, mm. right now, and it's a massive thing there. In terms of the drams, um, I will always buy my dad a bottle of whiskey on Christmas. He'll always yeah. buy me a bottle of whiskey, and we'll open them both um, early, we'll just say. Early <laughs> <laughs> in the morning. Yes, yeah, so we'll open them both early on the day, and whatever one's uh, tastiest will normally get a bit of a scudding. Um, and that's what that's all about again, because yeah. it's, it's me going back to my parents and seeing my dad, old man, and having a few drams, and... Um, and so the drama itself isn't that important, yeah, to be yeah. honest, at that point yeah, for me. Um, so, yeah, I'm very easy, please. So, Colin, I mean, you're, you work in the hospitality industry. You've got one of the most popular uh, whiskey bars in Edinburgh. You've got the Christmas period coming up. The, the Christmas lights are already up in Edinburgh as we're recording this on the 28th of November. You mentioned about the Edinburgh Festival earlier on. What's Christmas look like for you? So we put out to Colin's Christmas Cracker right. which was going to be our Christmas party so last year we did a thing called Tipsy Miss which was quite fun every day so I did like the 12 days of Tipsy Miss okay. rather than Christmas yeah I get yeah. it <laughs> <laughs> well you did tell me not all your listeners were as smart as you <laughs> just going <climb> up <laughs> so um this year we decided to go a slightly different route because right. we've got quite a few sort of private bookings and so on. So I'd say 50% of what we do is 
curated special events. Um, during the day, we're only open to the public about 20, 20 hours a week. Oh. That'll change after Christmas, to be mm. fair. We're going to be open up more. But we've got Collins Christmas Cracker, um, which will be an absolute cracker. Aye. And then that's sold out, I don't know, about an hour, hour and yeah. 20 minutes. So then other people contacted me and said, we, we missed this one, could you put on another one? So we thought, okay. So we put on Collins Christmas Cracker. <laughs> Part two. <laughs> 2.0, eh? Yeah, so the Santa hat will be worn more than more uh, on one occasion. Um, so what's going to happen with Colin's Christmas cracker? What, what's I don't want to give gets? too much away. Okay. Um, well, this, this is going out in 28. So, t- Colin, tell uh, us about Colin's uh, Christmas uh, cracker. Un- unbelievable. <laughs> we, uh, we, we'll not grass it up. I couldn't believe that Santa actually came through the door. <laughs> <laughs> you had Santa over here. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, I've dressed up with Santa many a time, but I'm sure you can believe that. Um, but, yeah, we're looking at giving... More of a kind of informal party vibe. Nice. Pretty much mostly regulars um, booked up because, you know, obviously they know because of our events and stuff, they're always good fun. Mm-hmm. It's always about the whiskey and it's just a really inclusive environment. I've got um, a couple of chefs that I know who are sort of Michelin trained and Michelin starred. They're going to be providing some snacks, treats. So uh, oh, yeah. we've also got that for our hug mini oh, yeah. party as well. So this will be the first year we actually do a, a designated proper kind of Christmas party. Yeah. We've also got quite a lot of private events booked for December as well. So um, two weeks ago, assuming uh, I haven't fired them when they've left by the time this goes out, <laughs> we've hired a new trainee manager as well. Oh, good. Nice. Because um, obviously the business is expanding yeah. and we're looking to kind of create more events for next year as well. Brilliant. Now, if well, you, well, if sorry, Angus. Sorry, I was, I was, I was just. Well, you know, Graham, carry on. No, no, on you go. Well, I was, I was just going to bring it back, maybe to your career. One question I really wanted to ask you is, um, you know, when you were a, a chef, um, still am. Did, well, you are still a chef. <laughs> yeah. I don't think you can ever not be a chef. <laughs> but did did you enjoy cooking with whiskey? Was that something you did? Oh, um, question, is that actually. something you did a lot? And and if you did, were there any particular dishes so, you did? That, so we kilted lobster. That was seafood orientated. Yeah. So we did a lot of work with. Pulteney, Talisker, mm-hmm, any mm-hmm. of the more sort of saline, saltier, mm-hmm. coastal whiskies. When I closed down Kilted Lobster and opened up Whiskey Forager, yep. obviously the whole premise of that was it was a tasting menu. Instead of um, pairing it with wine, we paired it with single malt, oh, well, usually fun. single cask whiskies. Yeah, yeah. So that was particularly fun for me because to have the, the difficulty of pairing food and whiskey. I mean, there's a lot of places that do whiskey dinners. Yeah. But unfortunately, what happens more often than not is the chef won't even get to taste the whiskey. And the, the, the whiskey Somali or ambassador won't mm. get to taste the food. So it's almost like... a disconnect? It's a bit of disconnect, yeah. Ross. But there's also a, a bit of kind of laziness in terms of people saying, okay, we've got smoked salmon, mm-hmm. so let's do a smoky whiskey. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily work that way. <clears throat> yeah. Sometimes you want to be harmonious. Like I say, sometimes, yeah. you know, you want contrast. So, I if you're, to- sorry, Ross, if you're at Angus's house at Christmas on Christmas Day, <laughs> Colin's Christmas cracker's really good. Bear shape. <laughs> but if you do end up at, uh, and you've got duck on the menu, what are you saying? What are you putting on that? What would you do with that? Depends. Are we doing duck confit? Are well, we we're doing, just doing roast duck? A roast are we doing? Yeah. Are we doing it with a cranberry sauce? Are we doing it with an orange sauce, an anise sauce? He's panicking now. <laughs> <laughs> panicking now. So, so for me, one of the best sauces you can do mm. for duck, just to cut through that kind of fatty richness of it, if you get some 
fresh tangerines because obviously they're around this time of year. Yeah, yeah. Put them in a pot, some nice star anise, touch of cinnamon, a little bit of sugar, reduce it down, splash a whiskey at the end, um, pick a really nice fruity whiskey, um, possibly a nice lowland. Mm-hmm. Fire in there. Bladnock actually is one of my favourite lowlands. A few drams of that, reduce it down, strain it, take it out, add a little bit of butter, do a bit of montage of beer where you thicken the sauce with butter. And then you've got some beautiful gravy for it, and obviously use the juices for the duck. You better try this, by the uh, way. I'll be asking. I'll, I'll, yeah, <laughs> Look that, that online. sounds better than whatever <laughs> what I was trying to do. <laughs> Look at online. Angus will be trying this, whether he likes it or not, to try yeah, it. Yeah, no, that and, sounds and, and even if you don't want to do it, or something simple, get a can of pineapples. Yeah. You know, like Dole pineapples or any other brand. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> just put it in with some star anise, reduce yeah. it down, puree it and pass it. Unbelievable. Yeah. It's something you said. I, I, when I was in my brief stint at SMWS, um, at Queen Street, they were trying to make it a little bit more fine dining. And what we tried to introduce with the um, the head, executive head chef, James, was actually an out, the outsourced kitchen to a different mm-hmm. company. And, uh, but James is a very impressive guy um, with some fantastic locations in Edinburgh. He'd done this kind of five-course um, dinner, the option of wine or whiskey. Yeah. And so, at the time, I recently joined, but I could speak posh. I could kiss her, kiss her, kiss her ass arse. That it was like, yeah, you can do the posh stuff. And so, yeah, it was quite hard. I think people do find it quite difficult. The idea of hot food and whiskey pairing, yeah, yeah. and it's something that you know, with we've done, we've done an old potley single cask with a burrata. Uh, and tomato salads, and it was it was perfect. Those things worked, and people still really found it quite a bit of a challenge. Everybody that went for the whiskey pairing enjoyed it. Yeah. But it was just getting people brave enough to actually try it. So I'm imagining that, I mean, obviously, from your background doing whiskey and and food, that well, that would work. I mean, but we I, we invited. Mm-hmm. Sorry to interrupt. So so when we did a soft launch for Whiskey Forage, I invited kind of the great and the goods. Mm-hmm. I didn't know Ross at the time, otherwise he'd have been invited. Um, Was he old enough? Well played, well played. So we did invite a lot of whiskey experts, whiskey writers, aficionados, Mm -hmm. just to kind of see where the, I suppose, where the middle ground was. Mm -hmm. Could they appreciate it? Could they see it? Could they see value in it? Um, And then obviously we were going to open up Whiskey Forager as a full-time concept, and then, like you alluded to earlier, unfortunately, I was then diagnosed with cancer. Mm-hmm. And then COVID kicked in. Aye. So we had to kind of put that on pause a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but for that kind of four or five months of that experimental thing of Whiskey Forager, the response was absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's go back. I'd like to go back because, you know, you've gone from working in all these fantastic places and you've, you've, you've been around, but you came home and you came back and then you decided to open up your own sort of restaurants in Edinburgh. So what... What what was what was the challenge like there? What was what you you were based down in Leith uh, predominantly? Was that no it? Stockbridge? Stockbridge, sorry. Were you missing home? Hey, well, I came back. I came back to Scotland, Scotland because my sister. <laughs> don't want to get a mad sad story. So my sister was diagnosed with Huntington's disease. Right. So she was diagnosed terminal. Um, so I thought I'd come and come back for a year, maybe two years tops. Um, but she actually outlived the expectation. Yeah. So I came back to help the family. My wee nephew is only a teenager at the time, so I wanted to try and give a little bit of support to the family. Mm-hmm. I only actually intended on being in Edinburgh for a short period of time. In actual fact, my first job in Edinburgh was South Queensferry. I was the exec chef at a local pier down right. in South Queensferry. Um, so I thought I would only be there for a short period of time and then... Yeah, no, she absolutely outlived the expectations of the doctors. Then 
I was executive chef at a place in the city centre. Um, that, then I, I was at a certain age and I thought, you know what, I'm probably just going to stay in Scotland. Obviously, growing up on the West Coast, I did Glasgow. So I thought Edinburgh's got an amazing energy. Mm-hmm. Opened up my first restaurant, Kilty Lobster, 2016, which was seafood, which mm-hmm. obviously from travelling all around the world, um, I kind of really appreciated Scottish seafood. Yeah. Opened up the Kilty Lobster. Um, it wasn't a lobster wearing a kilt. <laughs> it was because I had a lobster and I killed it. Absolutely. <laughs> well, this, this brings me back to the cruise ship. One of the, it's, it's the old joke about the Titanic being a terrible disaster, but for the lobsters on board, it was a miraculous tale of escape. <laughs> and the Irish said it was fine when it left the dock. <laughs> but I mean, it, it's a big step. <clears throat> it's a big step. But I mean, I was in, you know, I'd been making some of the jobs that I'd chosen prior to that. I'd always wanted to open up my own restaurants mm-hmm. anyway. Some of the jobs I'd deliberately chosen were maybe dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. So I always thought, well, I'll try and work in other places where to see if I could turn it around and see if I could actually turn a, a venue that was maybe underperforming and then make sure it performed. And then that gave me the confidence, I suppose. Because I knew I had talent in the kitchen, but talent in business yeah, is a completely different mm-hmm. thing. There's so many amazing chefs out there that never get to own their own restaurants, mm-hmm. they get to the age of 35, 40, and then they have to choose other career paths because obviously physically working in the kitchen yes. is quite demanding. So the three or four jobs I chose before opening up Kilty Lobster was specifically because they were underperforming. Right. So open up Kilty Lobster on a pretty shoestring budget and then every year we just upgraded mm-hmm. and then reinvested into it. And then I think it was about year three, we won Seafood Restaurant of the Year, Scottish Restaurant, Scottish Bistro. We were number one rated in TripAdvisor for right. about three years. Uh, we had like, private clients, for example, Oliver Stone, the, the movie director, yeah. he booked us out. You know, we got an amazing review in the New York Times. And then that was it, kind of changed a lot of the dynamics. During the Fringe Ross, we were turning away 200 people a day, 300 wow. a day. You know, it was a small, it was a small restaurant, a uh, thirty covers, mm. and we do two and a half times. Wait, which if it mm. adds to the demand, doesn't it? It just mm. adds to the demand. You're offering something that was an authentic product in an artisanal environment, mm. and Edinburgh. Yeah. And to be honest, Edinburgh mm. is the right city for that. Aye. It is. Mm. I think it still is. And do you think that is it, for people listening to this who do have a keenness on on cooking? And again, there's a lot of connections between people who have a, a you know the the food side of it mixes with the whiskey side of it oh. because there is that flavour you, you know you can if you are experimental with different flavours and things like that so is seafood the easiest thing to work with and whiskey at the same time I would no I wouldn't necessarily say so right um, the seafood element was was a part of it mm-hmm. but even even at Kilty Lobster we always had um, organic beef or mm-hmm. we always had organic lamb uh, Veal, mm-hmm. um, one of my good friends, Denise, she's the owner of Pelham Farm down the borders. Every year she won award after award after award, so we used some of her um, produce. We always had vegan, vegetarian mm-hmm. options on, so it was never just about the seafood. Yeah. Um, the menu- well, when it comes to cooking, sorry, when, when it comes to actually working with a food product, like if you're saying, if you're going to do, is it a food that you particularly think 
agrees with drinking whiskey at the side of it. And all of it. All of it. Right. All of it. You can, and that was the beauty of it. So what? Hundred and forty distilleries, yeah. give or take. Yeah. I mean, obviously, if we then include a few d- uh, close distilleries, <laughs> and some new distilleries. Well, it's the English distilleries. No, which are also great, not, by not, the way. Not, not quite. <laughs> <laughs> I think the obvious is desserts, cheese, and that's what people go to. Yeah. I think actually the biggest take I took from what you just said about travelling the world is you came back and opened a seafood restaurant in Scotland because no matter where you are in the world the quality of the Scottish seafood clearly shines through true but, but I also identified there was only maybe three or four seafood restaurants in Edinburgh yeah. right. so I had a little that's true mm. yeah other than the kitchens what everybody mm. thinks of yeah. it, but actually well I'd say Undine Undine and Fisher's is busy yeah Yeah, Fisher's I mean for the the North American clientele we earn a little more Fisher's had an amazing amount of traffic that came through and a great location as well and you mentioned Whiskey Forager then talk us through that concept so Whiskey Forager was a more intense kind of reduced down version of whiskey and food right so it was instead of it being a la carte it was going back to a kind of old school degustation tasting menu Mm -hmm. so it was five six Courses seven if you include the amuse bush, or canopies if you prefer to call it canopies. <laughs> um, sometimes amuse bush is a little bit ponty, but there you go. Um, not as quite as bad as pre dessert. I can't, I, can't, I can't stand the word pre dessert. I love a wee, a, a, a wee palate cleanser. We yeah, yeah. get a wee, a wee um, lime sorbet between courses. Yeah. Totally unnecessary most of the time. And also, how good is it when you get it? <laughs> well, one of my pet hates at the moment is unfortunately some restaurants are now including bread and butter as a course. That's ridiculous. That is ridiculous, but honestly, like, we are very fortunate that. Um, we get to go and review different restaurants That's and cool. so on. But there's so many restaurants now doing bread, bread and butter bread as butter. Part, part of the tasting menu. But anyway... And butter's good. <laughs> and bread's even better. <laughs> but the... Um, so it's something we've got in common. <laughs> I, but I, I can confidently assure you I can prepare a great bread and butter. <laughs> but I mean, it just shows you what food... What, what, what the restaurants I go to is where pre pudding's usually the main course, so that's <laughs> <laughs> pre pudding's your knife and fork. Uh, exactly. So, I mean, the whiskey forager, then you, you decided to go into uh, more of the tasting menu, so you're doing five or six uh, five or six courses, courses. Um, really kind of concentrating on the flavour profile of the whiskey mm-hmm. and matching the food right. to the whiskey, not matching the whiskey to the food. Ah, yeah. That's interesting. So I was kind of went at it at a slightly different angle mm-hmm. from other venues that I've been to and other experiences that I had. I mean, I've, I've been lucky enough to go to a few different places and work with different chefs and see yeah. how they looked at it. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to put my own spin on it. And then, I mean, I was the guest chef at the Isle of Food Festival. Yeah. I cooked That's fun. 200 half lobsters <laughs> out of Ardenhoe at a massive barbecue outside Bomoa. You know, so I just really love the fact that using Scottish produce with Scottish whiskey, and I really delved proper deep. You know, like for example, we would get, you know, this is how nerdy we'd go, Ross. We'd we'd go and get water from, for example, from Isla, reduce it down, use the salt crystals. Really? Yeah. I mean, like you've not, like the the actual R&D I put into doing that was unbelievable. We had a Bradley smoker. And for example, we'd be using atomizers, and I was, I'd be getting uh, whiskey casts from guys that I knew, shaving them down, marinating them, using that to smoke the languistine, the scallops, the oysters. Like, 
you know, it was when just... When are you reopening? <laughs> suppose, suppose, for listeners, that, I've just slavered all over my chair. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it is. <laughs> but I mean, they say, like, you know, when passion goes into cooking, yeah. you can you can taste the passion and such and things like that. And when you're saying about doing these things, now, first of all, you know, it's, it is a, a semi-genius move that is so simple in the sense that going, well, let's not pair the whiskies to the food, let's pair the food to the whiskey. Yeah. But then also then going into that depth, that level of depth to try and fully understand and get gather that. That must have shone through in the food offering as well and, and, and then matching it with the whiskies. Well, we certainly hope so. And I think that's why when we did open up Tipsy Midgey, I'd kind of already won the trust yeah. of a lot of the whiskey world because they'd, <coughs> they'd, they realised that my transition from chef to... Because, I mean, I've been doing whiskey professionally for about 12, 13 years. Yeah like professionally and obviously as an amateur for 30 years but to do something professionally and then move into that sphere so seamlessly yeah but that was partly because a lot of the people that we'd i don't know impressed or mm -hmm. you know gained, it's, a small gained their trust. it's a small industry i mean it, trust trust is a big thing uh, well i think you know as you invite these um, whiskey experts, writers and such, when you're, when you're trying something new, if they're impressed, these are people you're going to bump into for the next 20 years. Absolutely. I mean, that is how whiskey works. It's, it's, um, and I want to stay in whiskey forager, but also, although you are a chef, you're also now a whiskey guy. And so my question would be, you're open whiskey forager, you must have already had quite, you've obviously been buying whiskey and collecting whiskey for a while before you opened that challenge. How does it now launch into you opening up um, whiskey bar of the year and so you must have had I know you personally have always drank whiskey but in terms of you're opening up a restaurant to do a painting have you got a thousand bottles ready as you're opening or you, uh, do you, know, do you know, it's one of those things you don't have to delve into the numbers specifically but had you been collecting for a while over 800 <laughs> <laughs> had, had you been collecting the, the, the largest for whiskey bar of the year <laughs> Yes, this is a. We're, we're currently sitting in the largest collection of open whiskey of a whiskey pub. But Colin, of course, is the, uh, the largest open collection of any whiskey bar in Edinburgh. So that's what we're that's that's what we're replacing out there. But in terms of opening this restaurant and then opening a whiskey bar, I mean, you've got to put so much liquid investment into that. So whiskey forager probably had some in the region of about five hundred open bottles of whiskey to choose from. So the same amount we had in Scotch. Which, I mean, if you which, put which that is, in context, yeah, which is a small people. amount of number for a, a proper whiskey bar. But I think for for a, for a restaurant that must have been the largest collection in Scotland. No, because no, you've got obviously the Artisan, which has thousands of whiskey. How bottles. many Brickladdies? I feel, I feel. I mean, no, sorry, I shouldn't say that. I mean, Derek is like unbelievable. Yeah. You know what Derek I've has. Actually, I've actually never been. I was just always told that the three thousand and two thousand were pretty <laughs> You know, and, and this is the thing. Like that's why I never try to get too bogged down in numbers. Mm -hmm. But um, I mean, De what Derek does is phenomenal. We we but then we put at it from probably a little bit more kind of, I suppose, more specific. Um, I mean, the whiskey. There's a kind of mythology going around, perhaps, that I've heard from other people that think, oh, I just had a big, massive whiskey collection and opened up a bar. Mm. Right, right. Not true at all. You know, we curated whiskies for Tipsy Midgey, mm -hmm. and we put whiskies into Tipsy Midgey that's both heritage and modern. You know, so not only do we have groups of whiskey or a 
collections of whiskey, but we also have every, pretty much every whiskey as it gets released. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, most people who comes who come into the bar, I say seventy percent of them look for recommendations. Ten percent people come in and say, "Do you have this?" Because yeah. it came out three days ago, Aye. and we will ninety nine percent of the time say, "Of course." So and, I mean, and, sorry, Ross, so and what I'll say about Tipsy Midge because I know that um, yourself, Angus, and Graham, you may not yeah, have been no, before. Been we the thing been, that no. I would say is most impressive about Tipsy Midge, and I'm not just trying to blow smoke up your ass. Mid- Midgey. Uh, Midgey, sorry, Tipsy Midge. You're not English, Ross. No, I was going to no, say, no, no, Ross, generally. English people say Midge for some. That's why we actually spelled it. It's us American messies. I'm saying loads of stuff funny. Um, oh, my, but, oh my god, Ralph. <laughs> yeah, I said, I said apartment on the podcast earlier. Um, I thought he was on vacation. He said he You mentioned your regular clientele, we bought the tickets for, for the, your festivities, but your regular clientele are also whiskey people. Yeah. And very so much. that's something that is, does make a difference. If you've got Tom from Cadenheads and Monique from the whiskey shop coming in as regulars, the knowledge base that they have is immense. Well, that, uh, yeah. Both great, great, great people. That's just an example of people that told me about uh, Tipsy Midgey before I'd heard of it. Yeah. Uh, and they were like, and they have a regular clientele. That's why it's stressful, I suppose, to have a new manager coming in because your clientele know the answers to the questions that they're asking sometimes. You yeah. know? And they're coming in, well, and, that- and you do get people, as we said about Scotch, coming 90% coming for a recommendation. But also, those people that ask them for a recommendation, well, say no to your first recommendation. Well, I mean, I, it's interesting. Like, I, I was going to talk about this, the trust element and about saying about trust. And, you know, if you walk into a restaurant where someone's put so much work and effort into putting together that menu and fully letting them understand and appreciate it and then building your reputation up for what you're, you're able to do, there's a lot of trust. And there's always a lot of trust in whiskey in the sense that we've talked about it before when you worked at Scotch Ross as well someone comes in and says oh I want this kind of or I, I don't know what I want and a classic example of it well, I was there on Saturday night um, and good pal Fraser Soonis was, was serving it behind the bar and uh, an American couple came in and he went ah, I just fancy a glass of scotch <laughs> and come he, to the right place and, and Fraser's <laughs> like right is there anything in particular this is Nope, just scotch. And he said, well, we've got over 400 to choose yeah. from, so can you... But again, it's like, he went down the process of the route of what do you like, what, what do you normally like? And he said, oh, I like a Macallan and I like this, but I'd like something different. So he went away. I don't know what, what exactly it was he got, but it was a Tam Do. Now, again, that guy will probably have never, ever heard of Tam Do before. Yeah. But him and his wife sat there and they were like, that's bloody good, that. And they were drinking it. Now, the trust element there is the fact that if someone comes to you, Colin, and says, right, Get me a whiskey that I'm gonna love. Uh, this is what I like, right? Now, get me something. You've got to. There, there's always an element of pressure there, isn't there? Well, I I hit it from a slightly different angle. I don't ask them what they normally drink, right. as in what whiskey they drink. I ask them what they like to eat. Ah, okay. So I say they like spicy food, they mm. like sweet food, they like sour, they like fruity, and then I try and use my knowledge and find them something that will excite their palate. Because if someone comes in and says, I like a Macallan 15, right? Or let's say they, they say, I like an Aberfell Day 21-year-old. You've then got to go down the route of, well, which year it was, because let's face it, every year is going to be slightly yeah. different, yeah. Dif- depending on the decade. Someone comes in and says they like an 18-year-old 
Talisker, yeah. you know, what decade did they try it in? Uh, of course. So, so, depending on what the vatting was, so I just generally work on what do they like to eat? And if if they're not even 100% sure, especially if they've never had whiskey before, uh-huh. I'll ask, do you drink red wine? Do you drink white wine? So, you're gathering a sort of. Exactly. So, I'm, I'm trying to quantify and qualify what they might enjoy. Usually, most guests come in, they'll have possibly two, three, uh-huh. occasionally four drams. So I'll then say, well, are we just in for one dram tonight? Do you want something beautiful? Just that one off, or do you want me to take you on a journey? (laughs) Take me on a journey, right. Take take them on a journey. I've got a question for you then. My wife's Indian. We regularly travel over to Bangalore. Sure. Uh, Whiskey is a premium out there, so I always pack my my case full of my own whiskey that I bring over. Um, now just selling it down at the market. <laughs> I won't be some of the knockoff stuff. The knockoff stuff they've got out there. I'll do better to match their prices. But if I have had, I quite enjoy a spicy, spicy curry or something like that. Sure. So if I'm in a hot climate, mm. had a nice bit of spicy food. Maybe it's maybe 28, 29 degrees outside. I've just had a nice bit of spicy food. What do you think I would have? Settle the stomach. Now the interesting thing is, father-in-law uses the phrase and the amount of different things he uses is he goes aids with digestion right so <laughs> he always says we need to have a, a nice whiskey after our meal because well, it aids ve- with the digestion well that's the very definition of a digestive yeah. there you go then right you know, so if you're looking at a digest again every person's different of course. you know so it would come down to how spicy is the food how yeah. much have you had is it carb based is it protein based is it vegetable based mm. is it meat based you know so you know, there is no one one fixed answer, unfortunately, or fortunately, because yeah. then that's why someone like Ross or myself will come in and be able to say, right, we've now asked you five or six questions. It's not the Scottish Inquisition, right. but, <laughs> but, we, but we're only doing it to try and give yeah. you the perfect yeah. the perfect dram. Tempi- temperature is important as well. My answer is, I'd be having a highball, Graham. Highball, yeah. I, can't, I can't imagine drinking something in that kind of humidity. Well, and I, also, I'm afraid of spice. Pepper and mustard, too spicy for me. Well, see, I drank, <laughs> I drank whiskey in Australia and it was 42, 44 degrees. So you use both you know. spits of time in Australia and drink well, whiskey? Does, I can't imagine does, that. Does, does your, I mean, for me, my whiskey flavouring, and it's like what Angus said earlier mm. on, it's like my whiskey flavour preference throughout the year changes significantly where maybe yeah. I like a lighter... Florally, um, maybe something, something like an inch gower that you've got, an, an inch gower, yeah, yeah. Night, maybe a bit of briny in it and, and stuff like that because it feels lighter. And that's like, and then when you get to the darker winter nights, a nice sort of warmer, dark, ready kind of uh, sherry, sherry number is something I would I would enjoy. Yeah. There. I, I used to be like that as well. Aye. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think it's one of those things. No, you just goes any time of the year. That, that, that does happen eventually. It's like, it's it's does Scotland have seasons, or do we just have winter and two weeks of summer? <laughs> well, that's <laughs> it. I go through a hell of a lot of lighter whiskies in the two weeks anyway. But no, just, it does actually surprise me that you drink whiskey when you do when you go over to India because obviously I understand the appetite. Yeah. That your wife's family have for whiskey as well is massive. Yeah, I mean, I mean that's the thing. So if you're having, if you're having a quite a full on, spicier heavy meal, then lots of rice, lots of rice, lots of carbs. Yeah, you know you're definitely going to want something. So I would go something. I would actually go something really full on. Okay. It's going to break down the richness of that. You know, I'd mm-hmm. go high ABV. Right. You know, I wouldn't hold back on the on the flavour profile because the easy answer is to say. Let's go something sweet and yeah, honeyed and like light and gentle. Yeah, yeah, no, I would I would go something full on. I'd go Motlach. 
Right. You know, get yourself, get yourself something that you're really going to be able to taste. Yeah. You know, especially if you've had a really nice Banglassi or Rieta, you yeah. know, so you've got something that's going to cut through all that richness, cut through all that dairy, cut through all that carbohydrates. Well, this is it, man. There, there, there are so many different, like, whiskey, we, we talk about every single week on the show about the perceptions associated with whiskeys, about you'll get some people that say, don't touch a blend, it's, it's, it's cheap rubbish. You'll get other people that say... Who said that? We'll oh. kill them. <laughs> but, but you'll get other people that'll say anything under 10 isn't, isn't worth drinking, or and all these different mixes of perceptions, but especially when it comes to food, when you get people that'll say, no, I, I know, right? Because what I always do is I'll put a nice... Uh, smoky isla with my smoked salmon whereas what you'll do is you'll you'll flip it you'll completely go and say no why why do we need to hold to that general rule of thumb where actually you can have and the beauty of it is and i can imagine the creativity that comes from being a chef when you're creating flavors and you're creating food being able to be creative with flavors when you've got as you mentioned give or take 140 different distilleries that all put out completely different flavor profiles must be so much fun for somebody who's yeah. who's into that kind of thing i mean you look at you know people often i'm sure you had it as well ross will come in and say i only drink speyside whiskey yeah, yeah, yeah. or i only drink highland whiskey okay so all right every single distillery will have such a range yeah you know yeah. you look at lowland whiskey like annandale you know the man of swords Heavily peated. Glenfiddich do heavily peated. Mm-hmm. You can go to Brookladdy and have unpeated. Yeah. Bunhaven, unpeated. So this kind of misconception of all Isla whiskies are peated. Yeah. And then even within Isla, you've got variations of peat. Yeah. But even within each distillery, you have variations of peat as well. Yeah. So it's a, it's a very... <clears throat> I suppose that's why whiskey is so revered all over the world, because... Every flavour is is represented. Well, I think an interesting thing I remember uh, being involved in a conversation where I was with a sort of older gentleman who, at the time, I wasn't much of a whiskey drinker, but I liked the whiskey. So we were having a whiskey. He was kind of acting as a sort of whiskey mentor towards me, saying, you'll try this and try that. I was in my early 20s, which I was quite happy because... Just last year? This was just last year, (laughs) just as I started shaving. But basically, he was kind of guiding me through, and it was fine. And that was good, because he got getting that kind of guidance. And I always remember when somebody came and joined us, he said, oh, would you like a whiskey, son? He says, oh, I I, I can't touch this stuff, I don't like whiskey. And he kind of went, you don't like whiskey? I think it was kind of well rehearsed, this kind of routine that he went through. And he says, do you like ice cream? Mm. And he goes, yeah. He goes, what flavour ice cream do you like? He says, mint chop chip. He says, right, I hate mint chop chip, but I still like ice cream. Yeah. And he says, how can you say, because there's that, he said, there's, there's, look at that shelf, son, that kind of stuff. Every single one of the bottles holds a completely see, different flavour. people say they don't like fish. Yeah. yeah. Or, so like, my mum, uh, rest in peace, she was a terrible cook. <laughs> and I hate to admit it, you know, because there's so many chefs that talk about, oh yeah, my granny was a brilliant chef and yeah. my mum was a brilliant cook. That's why cook. I like lentil soup. And I, and I really remember when I was six and we were chopping onions together and it was amazing. No, but was your granny's granny? <laughs> but, 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 well, <laughs> my granny's granny made amazing whiskey and, and waved a flag. Right, no, but is, is, is this not the two ways into becoming a chef where you've got 
the mum that's a great chef and you chop onions together at six year old and then you've got the mum that's a terrible chef and you have to cook your own thing <laughs> or else well, I'm sure this isn't how food's meant to be yeah. but she I mean one of the things that took me a long time to get over so everybody's got one of these so my mum made terrible spaghetti bolognese <laughs> the worst spaghetti bolognese she wouldn't drain the pasta properly so you'd end up with this ring of pasta water yeah. round the edge of the plate and for a very very long time I couldn't eat spaghetti bolognese yeah. So I totally appreciate when people come to me and they say, I don't like whiskey mm-hmm. or I don't like a certain thing because it's either been cooked badly yeah. for them or mm-hmm. they've tasted a whiskey that hasn't suited them. Mm-hmm. So I always, I never get too precious about it. I never get, I'm going to change your opinion. Yeah. No. I'll try my best to give, give them a bit of guidance. Yeah. I mean, we actually have a thing, I don't know if I showed you last time you were in, Ross. We've got a thing called Converted by Colin. Right. Okay. <laughs> so whenever we have guests that come in and they say I don't like peated whiskey or I don't like buckfast right. or I don't like this so we'll chat during the course of the evening and then I'll give them a wee sample or something and go oh what do you think of that right. and more often than not or 99% so far yeah. I've said oh, that's amazing what's that and I will say well that's peated whiskey that's or that, hate, yeah. that's what you told me hate so I then take a picture of them with my Polaroid camera and they get stuck on the wall <laughs> and then they get stuck on the wall ah brilliant so if you ever come into the bar you'll see a converted by Colin section right next to the bard there's a mug shots and everybody you know what we've been really lucky so lucky that in the 14 15 months we've been open We've only ever had to ask one person to leave. Right, yeah. You're next to the per- police station, aren't you? Well, that was definitely part of the strategy. <laughs> that was a strategy. I mean, I couldn't believe that it was a, a bar open or available right next to a whiskey distillery. Can we actually discuss I mean, Well, that's what we're going to I mean, like, 15 months ago, right? So you've, you've opened the bar. Like, you've made the step. Edinburgh's first distillery in the city for such a long time. And you've got a whisk the only decent bar near it, by the way, but also there's got a whiskey bar across the road from it. Now, I, I want to talk about this, right? So, Tipsy Midgey, right? Right. Uh, now, the interesting thing here, when we were speaking to Kev, is Kev was saying about how I'm a custodian of this pub. It's been here for years and years and years. I get the lease, I'm in charge of it, yeah. but somebody else will be in charge of it and stuff like yeah, that. He, he's been here since 2006. The customers have been here since the 80s and 90s. Did, did, was the Tipsy Midgey a closed pub when you took it on? And what was the space? What was the situation with that? So did always, you start it from scratch or was it always a Tipsy Midgey? Or? No, no. So it would always been a boozer um, or a kind of more traditional bar stroke pub. It had previous incarnations, the kind of two and three incarnations directly before me. Mm-hmm had tried different things. Some were going for more kind of traditional tenants-led um, bar, the one directly before me. He was a great guy. He was involved a lot in student kind of events. Right. So he did quite a lot of live music and karaoke and stuff. Nice guy. But just, I don't think it was quite right for that part because let's face it, in Edinburgh, 70 to 80% of students aren't from Edinburgh. Okay. So they go home, obviously, during summertime, go, go home during December. So then you're left with a situation where you've got a nice set of regulars for certain parts of the year, but then, obviously, it's empty. So so COVID took a little bit of toll on it. I don't think they quite made it through COVID. It'd been lying empty for quite a while. It was derelict. It was completely... Uh, Old fashioned. Yeah. Um, I don't think anybody had taken any wallpaper off the walls for about thirty years. 
when we went in, like, I wasn't physically well enough to really do anything. I had to get a group of my friends to come in, mm-hmm. and all my guys were really nice. And, like, we, it was almost like being an archaeologist. Remember years ago when you used to be able to smoke in pubs and yeah. stuff? So there was about layers and layers oh. and layers and layers <laughs> and layers. There was even yeah. wood chip and anaglypta and all really? sorts. Wow. Um, we had to rip up the floor. Yeah. Did yeah. it have red upholstery? It had red vinyl flooring. Oh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, And, like, obviously they had dogs and stuff, so dogs had been pissing on the floor Jeez. for a year. Like, when we ripped up the floor, the stench was oh, unbelievable. No bottles underneath the floorboards. Unfortunately not. Did <laughs> you hear that story every night now? Well, we happened to find a 1952 McAllen. Yeah. That, that was a handwriting on that bottle cord? <laughs> oh, no, that's definitely an Italian import. <laughs> so from that point, of, so so we basically refurbed the interior. Um, and Tipsy Midgey just kind of came about. I was going to call it the Drunk Midgey. Right. But it didn't seem too no. appropriate in this day and age, so I went with Tipsy instead. All my all my different venues and projects have always been sort of Scottish sounding. Uh-huh. Two names, they had to be unique because let's face it, these days with social media, yeah, you have to invent yeah. a name, you have to be creative and come up with something because it's more than likely going to be taken on the on the website, domain name, and so on. So Tipsy Midgey, the idea was with Midgies if they bite you. And if you have enough alcohol in your system, you fly away tipsy <laughs> and then they leave you alone. So that was kind of the idea of it. It was meant to be fun. Yeah. So when people saw the name, they knew it wasn't too serious. It wasn't pretentious. Mm-hmm. We didn't want to call it something that was a little bit kind of grand So it was all about kind of keeping it fun, keeping it humorous. So, I mean, that, that's, that's the incredible part about it is, uh, did you... Did you inherit a set of regulars that kind of said we've drunk here for no, years no, and years? All. So, I, so I, you're starting I, literally from scratch. From scratch. And it's so difficult to actually create something as opposed to maybe, as you say, being a custodian. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong, being a custodian is incredibly difficult yeah. because you have a set of expectations to live up to. Um, but creating something from nothing is also pretty difficult <laughs> as well. Well, I mean, it is. And of course, you're, you're coming in at a time where... It's it's no secret that the hospitality industry is having an up and down period of time. You're it's coming on, on its knees. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. and and one of the reasons that you were probably able to take that pub in that location at that time was because on the back end of COVID, some bars and pubs and restaurants they couldn't survive in that period of time. People's habits have changed in terms of how they go out and drink, socialise. There's still that element there. Does it help having the the whiskey and gin, of course, that, that theme? to hold people in because you know that when people are coming to your pub your bar they're coming for that particular reason I suppose I did it more just as a passion project because right. it was my intention and still is my intention to reopen Whiskey Forager mm-hmm. but it was really just a waiting game because physically I mean obviously when you when you get the scare of, of going through cancer treatment and then cancer recovery you don't know exactly what you can do. Yeah. So I really just wanted to, I mean, I couldn't just sit in the house doing nothing. And obviously I've, I'm, I would say I'm fairly well-versed in the world of whiskey, so I just wanted to do something partly to motivate myself mm. and also just to make sure that I still was able to get involved in a, in a certain set of circumstances. Yeah. You know, Tipsy Midgey has only been running at a 
about twenty percent of its capacity mm-hmm. in terms of being opening. Wait until next year. <laughs> yeah. Right, the plans that we've got for next year and in the second and going into the second year is phenomenal. Yeah. You know, we've got so many events lined up, we've got so many different things we've got lined up. We've just created a new alpha and omega menu. Right. Um, which I'm not going to go into oh, just wow. now. Well, will be. Um, so, you know, partly what we wanted to do was give people a whiskey experience mm-hmm. that was both familiar but also innovative. Yeah. You've been so. really well backed by the industry as well, Colin. A couple of master classes that I've done recently, but actually over since you've, since you've opened, there's not many venues that have done, you know, master blenders. Well, I mean, if you've got events every week, you're pretty much running stuff every week, aren't you? Pretty much. I mean, we are quite event-based. Thursdays, we do a thing called Distillery Discovery, and then Sunday, we do a a kind of thing called, well, essentially, I pick a different distillery every Sunday, take three drams, and allow people to come along. This has been brilliant on social media, your Sundays, isn't it? Yeah, the Sunday, again, it comes to... with Kilty Lobster, I'm not sure if you're aware, I also had a social enterprise right. called Cooking Up a Storm. Yeah. So we'd close the restaurant one day a week and we'd feed families, individuals who had isolation issues, poverty issues. You know, when we're talking about Christmas earlier, I was just thinking, I've worked pretty much every Christmas for the last 20-odd years, 30 years nearly. Um, we used to close the restaurant and we would feed families, mm-hmm. for example... But a hundred different families would get taxis for them. We'd do four different services and feed them, obviously. So I wanted to apply something similar to that to the whiskey world because, let's face it, the whiskey world is quite elite. Definitely. And also, let's face it, not everybody has a lot of money. Yeah. So. And the whiskey world's getting more expensive as well. I mean, people that exactly are, Ross. People that are whiskey drinkers and whiskey lovers twenty years ago can't afford. They can't. Can. Unfortunately. You know? So what I thought I'd do is I'd try and have a concept rather than a break-even bottle, which is fairly fairly standard. Yeah. A lot of places do break-even bottles, but the problem with that <clears> is <throat> you get people coming and once it's gone, it's gone. Yeah. So what I wanted to do is pick bottles of heritage rather than new bottles, and then people could try whiskey that they've maybe never had before. Yeah. So I picked three different drams, orig- you know, official original bottles, not um, indies, and then get people to come in and then can do a comparison of different whiskies. So three whiskies for 10 quid, Aye. which unbelievable value, but it wasn't about the, the price of it. It was about giving people an opportunity to try whiskies that have maybe read about, seen, heard. That's when it popped up on our radar, Angus. Yeah. The Daft Mill. You did three Daft Mills. Or oh, the queue was at the door for that. Yeah, can I imagine? <laughs> Aye. Aye. I remember that. I yeah. sent you the... I think I might have sent you yeah. a screenshot. Yeah. It popped up on my Instagram at the time. I mean, yeah. that was a good few months ago now. That would have been... Yeah. But I remember thinking, oh, my God, how do you get three... How on earth are you able to get three drams of Daft Mill? I mean, I can't remember what the offering, what the bottlings were. Was it the it new 15? It was a 15 at the time. Obviously, there's a new 15 yeah. now. Uh, the Fife Whiskey Edition and 2008, I think it was. 2008, yeah. yeah. But, again, this is goes back to my philosophy. So if a bottle's been open for more than eight or nine months, mm-hmm. I want to move it on. Yeah, you need to get space. Right, not, not even that. It was <laughs> one, of, one of my pet hates is I'm sure maybe Angus and Ross will maybe agree or disagree with us. Mm. I've been into whiskey bars and I look at the gantry and I look at bottles and I'll be like, oh my God, you've got this or oh my God, you've got that. Mm. 
when did you get that in? Uh-huh. And the barman or bar person will say, it's been here for as long as I've been here. Uh-huh. And I'm like, how long have you been here? Six years. Uh-huh. Now, obviously, everybody has a different opinion on how long whiskey stays mm. within its parameters of mm. how it's intended. My personal belief, it's 12 to 14 months. Right. Some people think it's two years. Some people think it's three years. But for me, I want the whiskey to be enjoyed at its peak condition. Yeah. So this also allows me to give people the opportunity to try whiskey in its peak mm-hmm. condition. And also I get the chance to move bottles on and replace it with other bottles. And to show them the bar. And so if somebody comes bar. in for the first time they, and they do a Sunday, you know they're going to come back. Well, I mean, gonna, that's it. True. To, be, I mean, to, to go from 15, in 15 months to go from a blank canvas to then winning the, the whiskey bar of the year... I mean, obviously, I'll be honest, from, from speaking to you tonight, we've never met before tonight. You know, the whiskey guru side, as you've mentioned earlier on, you've been in the industry, the whiskey industry, working professionally for 15 years or so, but you've not been in the pub industry, you've been in the pub industry for 15 months. So to be able to actually take something as a blank canvas, put your spin on it, do what you've done, and then be able to be have the accolade to be the 2023 Whiskey Bar of the Year must be quite a, quite a moment for you. It was nice. I mean, I don't want to sound... So it's a, you've got to be careful, but you don't want to sound too conceited. You don't want to sound too humble. Mm-hmm. You don't want to sound... Because it was a great thing. Like, yeah. I really enjoyed, obviously. And did that put you on the map, sorry? Did that did that give you more? Not... I would say the clientele... I, sorry, I don't want to speak for you. I would say the clientele and whiskey already knew about Tipsy Midgey yeah. before the award. Mm. But it certainly... Maybe for people that aren't... Okay, okay, obviously I knew about Tipsy Midgey. I literally am 50% whiskey. I've mm-hmm. worked to whiskey since I was 18. <laughs> I've worked to whiskey since I was 18, so of course I knew about Tipsy Midgey. Whiskey whiskers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's one of those things that certainly I imagine for people that had been once or twice before and maybe had not a more casual whiskey drinker, yeah. which is the main money-making audience, I suppose. Maybe it should be. Well, we haven't whiskey. pushed those elements too yeah. much yet. Right. So we were waiting until we were actually fully open mm-hmm. because up until, like I say, up until even today, mm-hmm. we're still only open part-time. Yeah. Now after, as I alluded to earlier, after Christmas we've got, or January, we've got some bigger, more bolder uh, strategies for letting people know that obviously the achievements we've had. But up until, up until now, we've just been kind of happy... Organic, organically growing yeah. the sort of business with myself and it, some part-timers. It was just and yourself for a long time, wasn't it? Well, mean, well, we've always had part-timers okay, um, and we've always had, I mean, like you say, with the brands that have helped us out or the brands that we've showcased, obviously part of our business was showcasing other brands. Yeah. So they've obviously um, taken the mantle in terms of providing guest speakers and mm-hmm. so on. So that really helps. Yeah. Um, but up until now, we're still... I mean, literally, we are part-time. That's fantastic. I, mean, I want to talk a little bit, you, you mentioned, you've mentioned about being diagnosed with cancer and spending that time of your life. Mm. I mean, did that affect, did that affect your time? Obviously, it's a hellish, horrible thing to have to go through and deal with. And of course, puts everything into perspective, as you've, as you've said as well. But in terms of like, your career, your life that had been about flavour about eating foods and about drinking whiskies and stuff like that was there a jeopardy that that might have changed on your recovery yeah absolutely i had to recalibrate my taste buds right um i had to do intensive intensive research into how to recover from that 
Um, actually, my oncologist has asked me to give him the findings and give him my my detailed diary of what I did, wow. how I overcame it, how I responded, how I changed things. Because obviously having radical radiotherapy and aggressive chemotherapy, mm-hmm. um, not everybody comes out of that with being able to taste. And no. I mean, luckily, as you guys know, whiskey is partly about smell. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have a master blender, you know, they're not drinking whiskey every day, they're, they're nosing whiskey yeah. every day. And my, my nose has always been phenomenal. I was a super taster before, um, obviously as a chef, I've never smoked, so my, my actual taste buds were always very, very acute. I've always led the way in terms of being able to identify flavours, but it did take me probably six to nine months to be able to recalibrate right. my taste buds. Could you give us an insight into what, what that, what that you're talking about this diary that you put together and sure. the work that you've done, can you give us a little insight into what that kind of, what work was involved in that? Absolutely. So things like getting seven glasses of water, putting seven amounts of salt into each glass. So imagine seven glasses of water in front of you. Right. And the amount of salt that's, that's in it has changed from a small percentage. Uh-huh. Then being blindfolded, getting my partner to change the glasses around, and then I'd have to put them back into order. Really? Yeah. From your taste? Uh, just from, from just yeah. purely from working on my saline. Yeah. Right, wow. um, things like having oranges and burning them to different degrees. Right. Oranges are particularly good because obviously you've got so many different, you've got citric oils. acid, you've got the oils, you've got everything. So I would I've used my flamethrower. Mm-hmm. Well, well, feeling for a bad yeah. guy. Blow, blow, blow <laughs> torch. Blow <laughs> the Glasgow. You've obviously got one of them. Sorry, sorry. I used my chef torch. Um, so I would, I would, I would char mm-hmm. certain, you know, I would char them to certain degrees yeah. and then I'd, I'd have to then, again, close my, well, blindfold and then, t- like, the, the amount of work that I went into things, using things like the potassium from coconut water, fruits, using different fructose, using different citric acids, just to recalibrate my taste buds, and then slowly but surely over that six to nine month period, just it's been quite frustrating. I mean, for, but but also satisfying to come out the other side of it and be happy with the results. The thing is, Ross, they told me that I would never be able to eat again. Right, so right, they wanted to. So victories actually in perspective are. So so they said they wanted to put a bag, and then they would inject food through my tummy, and I refused it, and my my oncologist was dead against it. He said I wasn't going to survive. I put deliberately so, I mean, I'm a big guy, you can't see that on radio um, or podcast, but I deliberately put two stone on before I went into treatment just so as I wouldn't lose any weight. Yeah. So afterwards, although I lost weight, I didn't lose any weight that I didn't already have. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, I came up with, I don't know if you're familiar with what ketosis is and so on, so on. So I worked through a, a way to stop a ketogenic reaction happening from not having any food. Did you? So yeah, so the, like, the, the stuff I went into was unbelievable. It's, it's quite remarkable. I mean, to, to be told never, you're not going to be eating again. Now, the, 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 because people find like whiskey having quite a strong bearing taste, yeah. did that make a difference? It in, did. In terms of it being whiskey instead of maybe say wine or something like that, where it's maybe just got these much stronger flavour profiles and notes. Well, I remember, and I took Cody and Moa to Iowa or we went in about two months, three months after I finished treatment, and we were in Ardenhoe doing a tasting with Paul, the distillery manager at Ardenhoe, and I couldn't even taste the whiskey. 
Could you not? It was burning my mouth. I couldn't even taste it. Couldn't taste it. I had to dilute it to four parts water, one part whiskey. Goodness. Before I could actually taste the whiskey because it was too intense. And then I remember two months after that, me and Cody and a few other friends were in uh, Inverleaf Park because right. I live in Stockbridge. Right. And we're drinking 25, 30-year-old whiskey in the park because COVID was still on. And I'm like, right, I'm getting this again. I'm, right. I'm, I'm getting back into this. Um, and then every every sort of couple of weeks, I would invite a, new, a, a, a whiskey friend of mine, like different whiskey friends, and I'd be like, okay, so what are you tasting? What are you getting? And then I would recalibrate my taste buds oh, from that. And then, you know, within six months, I was back to normal. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you say, the intense flavour of whiskey allows me to pick up, or allowed me to pick up the nuances. Oh. And then from that, yeah, just back to normal. There you go, eh? Cody, Cody Reynolds mentioned um, drinking in the park as one of his kind of whiskey stories, actually. It wasn't, what, with it wasn't, me or just drinking in the park? No, no, <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point. Sorry, sorry, Cody. Uh, no, drinking in the park with you during, during lockdown in Stockbridge and yeah. mm. spoke about that time. So, yeah, for listeners, you said Cody and Moa Moa, Swedish whiskey girl. Cody, just got married. Yeah, now Mr. and Mrs. Reynolds. Yeah. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. or, or Modi, as we call them. Modi, yes. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, because they lived in the Stockbridge area during the pandemic as well. That's so right. You so got to know them through that kind of difficult period for yourself personally. Yeah, well, also they, difficult period well they popped into the restaurant um, or popped into a tips, a, sorry, whiskey forager, and I sort of met them through that, and then just kind of um, got on really well with both yeah. of them. And yeah, they'd never they during COVID they actually had an Iowa thing, but it got cancelled. So we were going over to Iowa, and I said why don't you come with us? And I just kind of cemented and started a, a stronger bond. Brilliant. Now, as a tradition, um, you've actually brought some some food to pair up, paired up with some whiskeys as well with you for us to, for us to sample. Just in my bag. <laughs> Is that it? Yeah. yeah. yeah some got pocket meat. It's a tiny, tiny little bag there. <laughs> Doesn't look big, but... Uh, well, well, that's what my said. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is... I mean, the Christmas uh, has passed, if you're listening to this, and of course it's a build-up to the New Year, Old Year's Night, as we would say in Scotland. I'm on the run! <laughs> <laughs> but uh, just a quick chat, guys, about sort of top top drams. be interesting to hear. So um, 2023, we've all had plenty of whiskey. I'm struggling to be perfectly honest. Yeah, to think about. I, I mean, I'm probably going to pick the last three drums that I've what? actually just had because they were I, pretty I would, bloody good. But I would say it's more it's more interesting rather than saying what's the best dram you've had this year. Aye. And for me, going to tell you two ridiculous drums, I think it's more interesting to say what is the most memorable dram you've had, Aye. or has there been a moment or a place, or etc. etc. I guess so. You prepared for this? I'm oh, absolutely prepared. Uh, yes. Have you start us off? 2023. Yeah. So uh, this will melt everybody's heart that's listening. My favourite dram was uh, I, I went to an event Graham was hosting at Kakori uh, Kakori Rugby Club. Oh, aye. Uh, if you remember that in the summer, Graham. Oh yes, I did. Uh, at Becker Bay, and that's afterwards, right. uh, we, I think Graham, you drove through. So we, we, I'm right in saying, or we got a taxi, taxi back. No, we got a taxi back. Oh god! Uh, and we ended up at Graham's flat, and uh, Graham broke out the. Uh, now, what was it you had? The Macallan. 
Oh, yeah, oh God. Because uh, I can't remember exactly what it was. Well, that's great, gentlemen. The drama you're most remember, you can't even remember. <laughs> well, that's what it was. But this is the point. Is, well, I suppose it was that. It, 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 it had a great event. And I can't remember exactly what it was I had, but... It was a really good evening, and uh, nice. you know, with my oldest pal. There you go. That's uh, what it's all about, isn't it? And 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 it was, and it was just it was it was one of those it was one of those evenings where we went round to Graham's flat, and we went round. We got back maybe at like half eleven, and I think we left at like three in the morning. Aye. But it felt like I'd been there about twenty minutes. It was, um, uh, you'll know, Ross. It, it was the McAllen. Um, is it olden rate? Uh, it's a special rare, edition. The rare cask. Rare cask. That rare was cask. That's what it was. That's what it was. That's exactly what it was. Cracked open for Angus. Uh, it was a special. Yeah. I'd never I had it for. I'd had it for years yeah. sitting in the house, and it was one of these things. The burgundy or the black? Yeah, it's a burgundy one, yeah. I think. Yeah. But yeah, when, when I was asked earlier um, in the day, that I think, and I kind of thought back about all the whiskey I've had in the house and what I've been through. Uh, you know what I've drunk in the house and anything I've had out, and then I, I remembered that evening, and I thought, yeah, that that for me was. Well, my, my, that was very. It was very tasty whiskey to begin with, but it was a. It was. It was <laughs> great. Com- great company and a great evening. So there you go. Right, Ross. Uh, I, I'll, I'll let our guests go because I'm also struggling to be. Right. I'm, look, I'm currently looking at drams that take pictures. I've got a few in mind. So, Colin, anything that stands out for you for 2023? So, we very rarely buy duplicate bottles at the bar. Mm-hmm. The exception to that is probably the Lagerville and Offerman Guinness cask and the Glenmorangie Signet, just because people love them. Yeah. However, that being said, we've bought six of these bottles, I think, or five at the bar because uh, I'm ashamed to say I've maybe drank a couple of bottles <laughs> of them instead of sharing it with the guests. So it's a Motlach yep. from Woodrow's of Edinburgh, uh, okay. from Woody. Unbelievable. It's probably got everything that I love in a whiskey. It's spicy, it's sweet, it's savoury, it's meaty. It's got that little little bit of rubber and sulphur in there. Mm-hmm. Everything I love about a Motlach, everything I love about a whiskey. And it's obviously cash strength. Really? I think there's 270 odd bottles made of it. Yeah. And I've had a decent percentage <laughs> of it. Um, I've got one bottle of it left. Yeah. And I'm not going to open it for a while. Yeah. Um, but apart from that, I suppose. I mean, we've been open for more than a year now, but we did open up a 1975 Dallas Do. Oh, um, okay. When we after our first kind of signature or something. Like a cask. I know. Um, yeah, rare cask. And it was, I mean, I, I love, I'm from, I was born in 1975, so I've got a lot of whiskies from 1975. Yeah. This is the second bottle that I bought. The first bottle I bought for like 100 quid. Yeah. That one I bought for 700 pounds. <laughs> so it was a very special moment to open that one up. Um, so many great whiskies this yeah, year, well, so many, but I would I would go on the Motlach. Um, Nice. Just because I've bought so much of it, and yeah. I re- every person I've ever given a dram of that to has turned around and said, Wow. Yeah. Ne- ne- yeah. Never, never experienced a whiskey it like it. Sounds like the kind of dram that if you've seen another bottle, you, you would even take, you would even think, you'd be like, Yeah, I'll get another bottle of that. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. As long as it's not over a grand. <laughs> <laughs> it was only £90 when it came out. Yeah, exactly. I've been drinking a lot of grain whiskey this year. Um, in the last two years, I've drank a lot of grain whiskey. Um, and I think maybe I do have a slightly sweeter tooth for something that's quite soft and not complex, mm. something that's unapologetically vanilla and not much else. Um, 
And in some old grain whiskies, you do get a lot more, but my dram, my most memorable dram of the year is a Traverse City Whiskey Co. Um, bourbon from Northern Michigan. There you go. That wow. I had never had before. And never I, even heard of it. No, exactly. It's literally a shed. It's a shed and they make, like Michigan's famous for cherries, so they make like a cherry liqueur, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, they started making a, a, a bourbon and I had my first 4th of July in the States with uh, my fiance's parents. And I'd just been drinking a, like a 50 year old Inver Gordon two days before I went and a 32 year old Golden Cast on Barton that I just, every t- I found that in a few pubs in Edinburgh and I always buy it whenever I see it. But this, I think it was $28 a bottle. Wow. Didn't yeah. leave the state of Michigan. <laughs> uh, I had it on a big block of ice because that's how it was presented to yeah. me by the in law's mother first time around. Uh, she said, oh, I'll pour you your drink. I said, brilliant. And it came in a big block of ice and and actually in that circumstance and that surrounding and that location okay it's not what people think of when they think of me drinking whiskey no. but but that moment was like yeah that's a that's a company or a brand for as long as they exist i'll totally support them based off of this experience sometimes that's what it is i mean when you actually think about it i mean this i've got two and again it's probably not too much about the uh, the actual whiskey itself particularly one of them um but uh Royal Challenger whiskey in I've India. I've never heard of that. Royal Challenger. Uh, they are the owners of RCB, Royal Challenger Bengaluru, the cricket club, the cricket team. Okay. <laughs> and uh, it was the second or third last day of... Put that in a blind <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was the Royal Challenger whiskey. It was the second or third last day. I'd been, we'd, I got married this year in, um, in India. Uh, we were over, Angus, you were yeah, there, quite a few of us were over there, 20 odd Scots over there, 150 or 120 Indians, we were outnumbered quite quite considerably. I'd brought a couple of whiskies, I'd been priced a £150 a bottle for Johnny Walker Black Label and or, and or Glenfiddich 12 for the, win, for the whiskey at the wedding. Mm. I got a row because Angus brought quite a few bottles, I brought quite a few bottles, uh, they were got found behind the bushes <laughs> by this hotel staff. We're just going to the toilet. <laughs> ah, that was, so I got around from the hotel organiser, but we all had hip flasks that day. And I'll be perfectly honest with you, on that particular day, I, very, I drank very little whiskey because I was more interested in making sure everybody else had it. You brought a couple of really nice bottles, Angus, yeah, over. Uh, just from the duty free, I think, Balbler 15, but I didn't get to try as I much of us out of light because everybody else was having it. Aye. But uh, no, no, that was, re- that was really nice whiskey. So it was, it was uh, yeah. three days before I went home, or two days, we were at that stage, we'd been over there for three and a half weeks, seeing the family out there and stuff, and everything was getting a bit hectic. And of course, I always find that with the last few days when you're in with the family and everyone knows we're going tensions just start to run a little bit higher I made an excuse to go out and meet them for lunch later and I remember going to uh, this place and it was a, a really nice sort of bar restaurant area and a nice veranda outside lovely sunny day thought this will do me so outside and I said can I get a, a, a pint of lager or a half pint it was and I said I'll tell you what because it was the RCB Royal Challengers Bengaluru pub Right, I said, I'll, I'll try your Royal Challenger then. And the guy picked up Scottish, Scotsman. I said, yeah, I'm Scottish. Oh, whiskey, yeah. I said, yeah, like my whiskey, so I'm keen to try. Is that, I like to do that, I said. <laughs> He's Welsh. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, I said, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, get I'll, try, I'll, try your, I'll try your Royal Challenger whiskey then. And I'm frantically Googling uh, Royal Challenger whiskey to see what I'm, what I'm in for here. And just see what it is. 
And um, it's an Indian whiskey, so it's got some scotch in it, yeah. but it's blended with Indian whiskey, I believe. So uh, I drank the beer, and they gave me a double measure. And I said, oh, that's very nice. And I was drinking it. I was like, mm, maybe it's not as nice as I thought it was. But I tossed it back. And then about 30 seconds later, I'm ready to go. Right, I better go because I'm meeting them for lunch. The boy arrives with another, <laughs> another pint, another double whiskey. He says, happier, you get another one for free. Yeah. So I said, I'm So the reason your whiskey <laughs> is because you get two for the price of one. I got, I got, I got, I got, I was meeting the family so for lunch. Price of two. You want to see me hop skipping it? Because I'm getting phone calls from the wife to say, We're at the restaurant, where are you? I said, I'm literally, I'm across the I'm road. On the I'm challenge. just coming, but I've, I've got a pint in front of me. So I had to drop this pint and then I had to gain. This whiskey, I was a bit like, Oh, it's a bit ropey here. Necked it. Walked her across the road, but I walked into that restaurant with my mother, father, law, sister, and my wife. They're like, "Hi guys, one o'clock in the afternoon, and I'm blazing." But, but, yes. uh, it was nice. It was nice. Scotland. <laughs> and the other one, just to be cheesy, I'm going to go for it. It was, um, I'm going to go for the Grant Twenty Five. Oh, that we had, uh, Because it's the first whiskey that we had on episode number one of the Whiskey Stories oh, podcast. Yeah, That's yeah. it. Nice choice. Right, a tear to a glass. That's it. Nine pounds. <laughs> right. Now, as is tradition on the Whiskey Stories podcast, we have also gone through our own drams of the year. But, Colin, it's what three drams? And these are three drams for you. Have any sort of story, meaning, it might just be that you got a two for one, who knows? But <laughs> it's, it's, it's three drams that have any kind of story, meaning, or anything and connected you're, and to And you're it. absolutely allowed to get soppy. Most people have. Oh. <laughs> so... 1975 Arbeg, right. just because I've been chasing it for so long. Okay. And have you had it? Aye. Right. Okay. I've actually, this is my third bottle I'm on now. Um, oof. My first bottle of Black Bomore. Okay. Because I'd won £27,000 playing poker. <laughs> okay. So I was able to That's pass. a great story to connect to that. Yeah, I worked for... Yeah, I worked for a poker company. I was a um, semi-professional poker player for a number of years. Right, that's um, episode two. <laughs> <laughs> Colin will be back on. We get to the last five minutes of the podcast and you drop that. I know. I worked for Dusto Don, which is Europe's largest poker club, as the executive chef. So right. I got to play with some of the best poker players in the world. That's a different story. So you won 27, what is it? 27K. $27,000 or pounds? Pounds. 27 pounds. pounds. And you went and bought yourself a... a black Bomore. Had you been black eyeing Bomor. up this Bomore for well, a while? I, I, yeah, well... One of my relatives had a sample bottle of it and I always kind of wanted to have this have bottle. Own, eh? And obviously since then it's it's grown in notoriety. Um, the vintage I've got is now worth between forty and £56,000. Really? And yeah. do you tap into that every now and then? No, or no, no that one's no open. That sits on the wall. This is, that was my first bottle of black, but more. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. And third one, jeez. So many to choose from, but what, what was that dram? Sorry, to, what was the dram on the park where you're sitting drinking it, and it was the first time you realised your taste buds for whiskey were coming back? Well, we actually did a <laughs> we actually we actually did a tasting in the park. I brought a uh, Ardbeg eight year olds. The discussion, yeah. Talisker eight year olds, and it was three eight year olds that we brought along. Um, Whiskies. Aye, aye. <laughs> <laughs> Cody's older, mate. <laughs> so hold on, and, and so that was. Uh... So yeah, so I mean, they were they were they were memorable in their own way, but um, I'm just trying to think of something that was 
Because I don't want to get too soppy per se. Ah, it's fine. Um, Should have heard him gushing over his fiance <laughs> on the first episode. <laughs> Cody had, like, for example, Cody spoke about his grandfather um, huh? who would remember who Cody was when yeah. he spoke about Tom and Tool. Ah. Like, I think of those stories. I mean, it's just... Some great stories. I mean, right? even just at Cody's wedding there on Saturday, it was brilliant. So, yeah. so Ian... Um, Aye, so Ian, the master blender for going Callum, Tom and Tool, we actually did an event with him the week before. Yeah. So we were like, like what are we going to bring to the wedding? Because like, my hip flask is legendary. Aye. So I'm a judge for the Scottish Whiskey Awards as well. So whenever we go to the Whiskey Awards, we've all got hip flasks and we all try and kind of uh, show each other <laughs> what, what we brought. So I says to Ian, okay, so what are you going to bring? He's like, I'll, I'll bring something a bit different, a bit funky, because I gave him some old, old whiskey when he was in the bar. He brought three hip flasks. Three? Three. I brought one 36-year-old Pulteney. Oh, aye. And he brought three hip flasks just to out-hip flask me. Uh-huh. It was unbelievable. But um, I suppose I had a Bora 1979, which was f- immense. Yeah. But I'm, I'm so, probably like everybody in the whiskey industry, was so fortunate to get to try whiskey oh, from, you know, I mean, I had a 1962 30-year-old cash in Dalmore. That was just unbelievable. We've got... So that, is this in a bar that you're trying these, or what's the story behind it? So the story is just I've managed to pick them up, and yeah. then, you know, like we've had special curation at the bar, and then I've got a chance to try them. Yeah. Um, at the bar just now, we've got a Laird of Logan from the 1950s, mm-hmm. which is a blend, but obviously it's a white horse blend, so... You're loads talking, of lag of the so yeah, loads of lag, but you're looking at whiskey in there that's at least 15 to 20 years old. Wow, yeah. So you're looking at whiskey from the 40s, 30s, maybe. You know, just to be able to try whiskey okay. from that are even older than my dad's socks, <laughs> <laughs> which is significantly old. You don't get any, you don't get any cardio from your granny's granny, no. <laughs> I do have, I do have a significant cardio collection. I bet if you've got a family connection, you're but going. they are they. I am a custodian of that collection. Yeah, very few. Like we've got Cardo from back and beyond, nice. but that's they'll never get opened. No. They'll just be passed yeah. on from generation to generation until, unfortunately, one of the generation get any serious <laughs> debt. Well, that's what does what I guess does it just opens it up, finishes it at uni, and then stubs ciggies out in that. <laughs> 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 I mean, Colin. Tell everybody that's listening to this, how can they find the Tipsy Midgey? What, how can they get in touch? What can they expect? What can they see? So Tipsy Midgey has a, a reasonable uh, social media platform. Mm-hmm. So, so we use Instagram as our main platform with Facebook as a secondary platform. Um, we're open to the public at the moment. Like I say, Thursday nights, Friday nights, Saturdays and Sundays. When you hear this, it'll be after Christmas. So hopefully we open up on the Monday. We're also going to be doing... Um, a Tuesday night we were doing Tipsy Tequila Taco Tuesday. Oof. So I've been learning about mezcal and tequila for the last two yeah. years. So we're going to be pairing that way to uh, taco. So we'll open on right. a Tuesday night for that I'm as sure well. you make a good taco as well. Well, <laughs> again, we're looking at doing collaborations with various chefs around yeah. Edinburgh. Nice. And, and we're also then having a look at doing a highly regarded cocktail specialists yeah. and maybe doing a cocktail night on a Wednesday night using Scotch whiskey so it's almost like getting a resident DJ but yeah. instead of a DJ it's going to be a 
a hipster cocktail wanker. If you've got any spaces for whiskey podcast wankers, we'd love to come along and do an episode uh, along at the Tipsy Midget because it's been fantastic hearing about it. Thank you. And we're also looking at doing our own um, YouTube channel uh, from after Christmas as well. So we'd love to invite you along to get you in for a wee bit of uh, visual chat as well as audio. Perfect. Well, listen, come on, Hines. Thank you very much. Hines, thank you very much for that. Really, really. really Thanks, guys. Thanks for inviting me. Thank Cheers. you, everybody. Thank you very much. Cheers, yeah. Sanjavar. There we go, lads.